0: Hello, and welcome to the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast. I'm Cathy Love. I started life as an OT, had an amazing, crazy private practice, which I sold. And what I do now is help allied health business owners create a business that serves them, the time, the money, the joy that they absolutely deserve. And this is where my idea for the podcast started. What I want to do is to capture how hard Allied Health business owners in Australia work to achieve their dreams, to support their teams, to create amazing outcomes for their clients. So sit back, beverage of joys, drive safely, walk carefully, however you're listening in, and I hope you absolutely enjoy Welcome Kay Frankham as our conversational guest on the podcast. Good to have you here. Great to be with you, Kathy. Thank you so much. We were just saying beforehand that through social media and email and all the rest of it that you know it's kind of nice to meet face to face here and uh, really rather than circle around all the comms to actually yeah have have this chat. so i'm I'm keen to hear your story.
1: Yes well it, it is great to be here talking to you because I think we're of a generation um, in terms of our experiences both running businesses as I both of us have done but also um, I guess in the coaching space which I'm now have been in full-time for about five years and um, before that I've run a couple of practices in regional Victoria and then in Melbourne um, but also done a heap of other things as as you know like I've been a regulator I've been on the I was on the first psychology board of australia i was a psychologist board of victoria first female president for five years um in mm. a female dominated profession to have never had a female president is well at the time it was a bit of a disgrace if you ask me but i was pretty happy to be the first one um mm. and uh yeah so lots of different things supervisor yeah i've i've, I've done a lot of things and um Now is a great time in my life, I have to say, and it's a privilege to be um, talking to you about it because I think you've probably um, had an interesting life yourself and um, we can see other business coaches and and, um, supervisors and people who are wanting to support our professions, our allied health professions coming up in the ranks. So that's kind of interesting as well. Watching Mm. younger Mm. practitioners who perhaps are not as experienced as we are, but have got plenty to say and um, uh, I've got a different perspective so it uh, is an interesting multi-generational
0: yeah. <laughs> landscape. Yep. yep yeah absolutely. How do you introduce yourself given that your focus goes in several directions?
1: Well I probably it, uh, people often ask me this and I guess I say I'm a practitioner's practitioner that is how I would describe myself mm. and the reason I say that is because there's kind of nothing that um, I haven't done really. <laughs> And that sounds pretty big headed, but I think I come from a generation and I've been lucky enough that I've done industrial psychology. I've been a psychotherapist. I've obviously done a clinical psych master's and ended up doing clinical work. I've uh, lived and worked in regional Australia and also in suburban Australia. I've helped other people in their practices. Mm -hmm. I've supervised. I've worked in clinical work that was probably and still is pretty um, of the non-sexy variety, which is um, pain management and particular that leads you into working in work cover and um, the compensation space. And, of course, I've had the pleasure of uh, investigating a lot of my fellow practitioners um, in those roles I was mentioning before. And um, mm. so you see the, the worst of your own profession and, and the best of it. So, um, you know, to that extent things don't surprise me a lot anymore but I love um the opportunity to share the breadth of my experience and to learn from from others uh Mm. and their experiences because that's what kind of makes for continuous improvement in our game right
0: yeah yeah so that's the clinical DNA yeah Mm. what about the academic DNA what have you done there
1: well, um, you know, I, I came through a pathway which has just been made redundant as of 1 July, which is a 4 plus 2 pathway, which is a mm. four-year four honours degree. And back then, it actually was a 3 plus 3, three years of psychology, just an undergraduate degree, and three years of supervised practice where somebody um, signed up on a staff deck, statutory deck formation, mm. which nobody even knows what the hell that is. It's a bit like aerograms. You get them at the
0: chemist, can't you? <laughs> went, <laughs> went the way of
1: the dinosaurs, exactly. Anyway, um, did that and was living and working um, in the country, as I mentioned, and I knew that we were going to move to the city and I thought to myself, I've got to get a master's. I have to get a master's because I know that I'll be an apologist for myself otherwise I'll feel like having come from having I had a, actually a Bachelor of Social Work was my original and I was a social worker originally, which I have no apologies for. That is, it was a great grounding, mm. what a great um, profession Um, uh, to have that, uh, I guess, grounding in social justice and equity um, context, always thinking about people contextually uh, rather than in the intra and interpersonal space only. Um, So all of that, um, went back to do the Masters at um, La Trobe here in uh, Melbourne. And um, then I did a Masters in uh, Pain Management at Sydney Uni. Um, And so I've done a lot of... uh, Work in standards as well. I wrote the um, private practice management standards for the psychology profession, had a lot to do with our accreditation body. Um, and in all of that, I was invited uh, about six months ago by Deakin University to take an appointment with them, which I just did this week um, as an well, associate professor. Yeah. So, which is pretty exciting. Um, and because I think they appointed me because of that practitioner's practitioner piece, because I'm uh, hopefully, going to help establish uh, a bridging course for people who are already registered psychologists and who mm. wish to become clinical psychologists. So that's uh, the task, and hopefully to be launched in 2024.
0: Very, very urgently needed. And then, your spare time, written a couple of books. Oh, hold it up! That's the new one. Talk to us about the first book.
1: Well, the first book was um, kind of entertaining. Um, it's called Fit to Practice. And um it was really it came out of um really the the first six or seven years in Melbourne, where I was in um, running a group practice, and I end up with sixteen psychologists working for me. And I realized that there was this thing called this um, you know practice management standards back then, this the one that I then subsequently updated. Um, but it really didn't help you with knowing what these policies and procedures should look like and what was their purpose and how. you get people to comply with them and you know why why did you need them in the first place so i sort of spent quite a lot of time on that um my daughter who's now a lawyer had a year off uni she helped me with it um and then i wrote the book with two other colleagues um on basically uh, everything you ever wanted to know about setting up a private psychology practice in australia but we're afraid to ask Mm. and um australian academic press kindly published it and it's sold pretty well it ended up on the national exam curriculum but I wasn't done and so I've come back for another go with a different group of authors, five this time because I thought three wasn't enough and, you know, you'd want to write a book with a committee, wouldn't you? And it,
0: <laughs> yeah, imagine getting consensus there. So give us the name of it because I know yeah. you just flashed the book up but give us the name and the details.
1: So it's called Creating Impact um, and the subtitle uh, is The Four Pillars of Private Psychology Practice. Mm-hmm. So essentially, we're putting forward a model of private psychology practice, which far as I know, has not really been done before in this kind of way, in this kind of rigorous way. I'm not saying other people haven't got models and, and ways that they set up practices and uh, ideas about this. But this is really basically saying there are these four pillars that you need to have in place. And they've one's focused on the, uh, their elements uh, or activities focused on the client, on the clinician or therapist. On the practice itself and the business, and so our basically our baseline of, of the five authors uh, is um, that we all believe that therapeutic engagement is the beginning point, mm. and being able to enhance the therapeutic relationship, and we go on from there to um, talk about various elements of that. And the five authors have written obviously a number of the of the chapters between us, and we've all got our sort of specialist interests, and um, it was. A COVID project, would you believe? And um I guess, uh, which was, you know, not easy because we were three of us in Victoria, one in Queensland, one in West Australia. The other guys have all got young families, and they're running practices. So, um so it's a tribute to all of us, I think, that we got over the line. We launched uh, the book a couple of weeks ago. It's been selling reasonably well. It's got got. Um, I guess uh, we've been getting good feedback about it, and it's pretty exciting to be able to contribute in that way to, um, I guess, lifting up the practice of private psychology so it's not some kind of mediocre thing where you just do whatever you feel like because nobody ever really cares or asks questions about what you're up to. Um, It's really saying we're being trusted by government, uh, especially through the pandemic. Government turned to us and it turned to allied health in general and said, help, mental health is such a big issue. And so I think we, you know, government and taxpayers really deserve something given back to them that makes it worthwhile to have put that money into Medicare and into the support that we've um, you know, to offered to people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I haven't read it, but I'll uh, get my mitts on it and have a, nice have a, have a good look. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So you've also been a business owner. Mm. What uh tripped the wire from clinician to business owner?
1: Well, you know, I'm old enough to know what a Citizens Advice Bureau is. And um <laughs> what I found oh, was
0: laughs, laughs nervously.
1: Yep. Yes. Um what I found was, you know, having started the practice, you know, in the late um uh, sorry, in the early 2000s that um um, you know, I was just sort of toddling along on my own and and I had so much work I didn't know what to do with it. And this is even, you know, in the early days of um, uh, Medicare. And, I mean, I was in private practice before there was any Medicare rebates and people used to pay CASH and it was pretty mm, good back in the day.
0: Money.
1: Yeah. And, but uh, what I found was, of course, I just couldn't see all the people that wanted to see me uh, or see a psychologist. And there weren't that many people in private practice back then. Um, so, um, so I just was constantly putting people, yeah, you know, sending them off to this one and that one. And I thought, of that, you know, I'm going to start a group practice. And I had a f- few people I was supervising. I said to them, do you want to come work? Yes, yes. And next minute, you know, the rest is history.
0: Yeah. Was your business back then a bit of a runaway train that you had a little more enthusiasm than perhaps capability around the commercial businessy money side of things? Oh, look, I was... I, you know, my husband would say, you
1: know, he wouldn't have known one end of an account from the other. You know, I I was um, really lacked that literacy back then. Um, I went on to the Australian uh, Institute of Company Directors course because Mm. I ended up on the national board and I was the chair of the Finance Committee. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Well, that was some years later. But, you know, I I really, I realised I'd kind of in a way had a bit of a, what's the word, I guess a, bit of a block about oh you know maths is my thing accountancy economics I don't know much about that because I hadn't studied it but you know if you turn your mind to it you can learn it
0: I hear hey, that a hey, lot numbers well, totally is my teachable. thing nah. need help with the business stop side telling yourself
1: that stop telling yourself yeah. that you can learn um yeah. and you can pay people to do the hard yards if you like or the mm-hmm. you know the sort of uh uh the drudgery of it if you like but you can also get apps and uh, obviously these days software that just turns it all out for you and really it's just understanding the the uh I guess what you're looking at what a PL is what what it means what's mm-hmm. the difference between that and a a statement and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. like it's just really understanding some of those basic accountancy concepts and you'll be fine uh, but you need to understand them because otherwise you'll never have a practice you have any idea about what it's worth you'll end up doing as you and I've seen many times having your accountant say to you I don't know why you bother you know working because you're basically just working to pay other people because yep. we've yep. got into a situation where you know the practice just relies on your income because you haven't worked out how to actually leverage
0: leverage yep yep yeah mm. absolutely so yeah you know um ignorance is not an an excuse, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't pretend that you won't learn the numbers. It's a financial responsibility. It's part of your obligation as a director That's in the right. eyes of ASIC and definitely right. in the eyes of the ATO as well. So, um,
1: And, look, I think when you, you know, if you've got a group, you've got people coming to work for you, whether they're employees or contractors, you pretty quickly realise we've got an answers to their questions. Mm. Um, we've got to have agreements that we all are clear on. And yes, my first original efforts weren't that great, but they improved really rapidly. Not because I had any issues, but because I realised people deserved it. I mean, one of the issues with group practices is that you know they just prior to COVID, I think there was a kind of a groundswell, at least in the psychology profession, but maybe across allied health, was a sort of a view that these greedy, you know, group practice um, directors are you know sort of robbing, swanning around, swanning around, having a great time and robbing. Um, they're poor contractors or employees blind. And it, it, I don't think it was true. But I think in part it was because there's a, a lot of reasons why, but I think in part it's because we are not good at communicating with our staff about how all of this works. Yep. We're very secretive. A psychologist is a particularly secretive profession. Um, They don't talk about business to each other. They're very competitive, but they don't like to tell anybody they are. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah so there's a lot of barriers in our own thinking in our own mindset that means you don't learn and you don't improve in the way you should. It's all done in behind closed doors, which is not ideal
0: and it's pretty hard to uh, be open and transparent and share and disclose the right amount of the commercial element of your private practice if in fact you're not sure of it yourself, that's right. so you will put up those walls if you don't want the questions because you don't have the answers yet and I think all this tension builds up and it's just this well-kept secret that there's elephants in every corner of the room and hopefully no one will ask me and I'll be able to go home and it's all good. And I think this
1: is why people like you and I sort of ended up doing this coaching is because people do want to talk to another psychologist or to another OT or another allied health person whatever it is Mm. because they have probably wrongly in some respects, a view that maybe um, other people don't understand what we do because it's, you know, very special. Well, it is special in some ways, but not that special. Um, it
0: of a business, are pretty transferable, pretty agnostic, as I like to say.
1: That's right. And and I guess it's about um, having both sides, having people, somebody with a hard nut who just goes straight for the business stuff and really talk, can talk you through it and make it clear to you what is and isn't happening. And then that maybe the story you're telling yourself about what's going on in your business isn't right, isn't actually yep. true.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then somebody perhaps from your own profession like me might talk to you about how to get your mindset in, in the right place, talk about how what are the options for how you might get to a point that you can actually achieve the vision you have for your practice. Mm. But there are also some people who probably shouldn't be trying to run a practice.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And everybody else fits in between. And I remember in the early days of business that once I started getting good advice and good mentors, and I've always worked with a range of mentors for different people, different times, different reasons, I was intrigued and completely fascinated by how much I enjoyed it absolutely so great and then, to and then there's this sort yeah. of this guilt around oh this is really cool but other people didn't think it was cool so i'll just keep this to myself and keep going with what with what i'm really loving and getting results from
1: yes uh, i i think um you know to me the more um the more you are able to expose your thinking your work whether it's the clinical work or the business side of things um and the more feedback you get the more likely you are to get to something that really is achieving what your efforts should be showing, you know.
0: Yeah. So from your perspective, what are some of the key observations you're making about private practice at the moment?
1: I think it's in a state of flux, frankly. Um, So I think what we've got is um, we've got a number of reports that are sort of outstanding on uh, particularly in the Medicare front. So we're waiting for the Better Access report to come through from Jane Perkis. I think uh, we also have, you know, the effects of COVID um, on lots, in lots of ways, as you know, burnout, et cetera. But also that we sort of went from, I would say, resisting telehealth, basically, um, to being going. Who wanted
0: that thing? Yeah,
1: and then everybody went, wow, telehealth is pretty good. And then everybody said, oh, I just want to do that for the rest of my life. And then Or I, just, I never that, want to do it again. Well, yes. or And I think what we've got is at the moment people who might have thought this is an ongoing business model and now going, "Hmm, maybe not because GPs are saying to them, well, we'd like you to see this person in in person. And if you can't see, haven't got somewhere to see somebody in person, what are you going to do? And so you've got, um, I guess, demand coming from the market to say, um, you know, you can't just have whatever you want. You're going to have to think about what's Actually um, required by our, mm. our clients and our referrers, so there's that going on. I think um, for the first time in my in my career that I can remember, we've got psychologists. Um, basically, when people became psychologists, they were psychologists for life, not like nurses or teachers or other other professions where people might use it as a base to go and do something or other else. Most people practice as a psychologist, and now what we see is people if not leaving the profession, they're really considering their options. Um, And I don't know whether it's because um, they're not sure what they want to do or how they want to do it, whether they feel um, the pressure of the last few years and, of course, uh, the workforce who have been homeschooling and all the rest of it, especially in Victoria, New South Wales, um, you know, it's been a tough time. So I think there's that. Um, there, There are a number of... Um, I guess, balls in the air, I think, in psychology, but in allied health generally. We also have questions about NDIS, you know, how where is that going to land? Um, you know, we've got Bill Shorten back in the saddle there. It'll be interesting uh, what happens and, you know, it clearly can't continue the way it is. Um, so I think um, we've become very reliant on these third-party payers.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so it's skewing the market and skewing the way we think in some ways. Um, and um, and I think there's still uh, a lot of struggle with um, what actually does a private, a private practice that um, wants to demonstrate excellence, what benefit is that to the practice? And how do you actually achieve that in a private model? And you only have to look at what's happened to GPs over the last 10, 15 years, and you can see exactly what's going to happen to us. We're going to have some corporate. What's your prediction?
0: What's your prediction? Uh,
1: it'll be, you know, Aaron Frost, you know, and I, um, another psychologist, one of the authors, um, we talk about a lot. We talk about the fact that it's probably going to be, um, you know, I think big, big practices, mega practices. They're just circling at the moment. They haven't got any venture capital. So things are a bit tight on the money side, I know. And, the ones I've talked to have been looking at psych, um, definitely looking at allied health generally. Um, I think they're just waiting for the inflation to sort of flatten out a bit and then they'll swing into action sometime next year, maybe starting to buy again. Um, So I think there'll be mega practices and then there'll be probably niche practices. And for, you know, the sort of reasonable large group of maybe 30% of, our profession who are solo practitioners, this model will, I think, die out eventually. There were some people who continue to do it. They've got a particular thing they do. They're well-known. They're of a certain era, whatever it is. Um, But I don't think it's really, um, in terms of compliance um, and regulations and all the admin required, it's just not sustainable. So I think we're going to end up with niche practices of various kinds and and uh, larger group
0: practices. Yeah, big and boutique. Got it. Yeah, could. Yeah, uh, yeah it's interesting that I, I think the the heat on on that model, perhaps, has slowed with the change of government. Um, yep. International stuff. The interest rates probably aren't going to come down anytime soon. No. Um, so, yeah, this idea of them hovering is, it is hovering. true. I, th- I think yeah. in some sectors of the industry, it, no one's waiting. Like people have just got the checkbooks out um, and we're sort of seeing this gathering of s- small, surprisingly small um, practices coming into under some of the bigger, the bigger banners.
1: Um, yeah. It just shows you I think that, um, you know, in allied health generally there's um, there's a recognition that whatever we're doing isn't probably sustainable and if somebody offers something that looks like it could work people might take it up now whether it's right or wrong I'm not sure but
0: yeah whether um, it solves an immediate problem or just creates others well that's right so you've got you know um
1: even when I saw my practice people said to me oh you'll be retiring I went eh, no <laughs> oh, I heard that too really no um you know, and this is this goes to you know my my interest these days in longevity and uh, mature practitioner practice and mature mature practitioners is you know I'm probably going to live to ninety or more. You know we've been all gifted, people born of my era, uh, we've been gifted twenty more years of life than we could have expected we were going to have when we were born, probably thirty. Um, and I'm not saying everybody will have that pleasure if it, if, if if it is a pleasure. But um, I think there's all these kind of questions about then when does your work life, uh, where does it go? Yep. Your work identity, um, do you have another career in you? I mean, when Deacon said to me, um, would you like to be an associate professor of psychology, I went, Yippee. That's mm. And then I thought, oh, my God, fancy asking somebody my age to do that. And they just looked at me and said, you're the perfect person. What, what better person could talk to the people you've been talking to your whole career, private practitioners, the book you've written, a couple of books you've written now, mm. you're it, you know, and I don't have a PhD. So this is another thing about universities. They're going, you know, if we're going to get into a particular market, we need to have people who have credibility. Um, anyway, that's my story. That's what I'm telling myself, Cathy. Yeah,
0: no, <laughs> I'm totally, totally uh, with you on that. And it, it's that subject matter expert piece, like mm-hmm. where are the where are the qualifications you would should have, could have, would have completed to get yourself. It wasn't that such a thing based. in the day. It was, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and so yeah. The market is smarter <laughs> than waiting for people to graduate from programs before they put these sort of offers on the on the table. Running a business isn't just about setting up shop and becoming complacent. It's about showing up for ourselves and our clients with a commitment to continuous improvement. We have to be honest with ourselves about where we're at and where we're going. That means identifying strengths and weaknesses so we can improve. After all, if we're remaining stagnant, how can we scale and build the business and life of our dreams? That's where the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz comes in. We're not talking horoscopes and false This questionnaire is the perfect starting point for you to begin identifying your strengths, needs and blind spots as an allied health business owner. The process is simple. Answer the 14 questions and we'll send you a personalised report that includes actionable steps for you to start taking your business to the next level. Ready to take your business into your own hands? Take the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz quiz today. So back to your crystal ball, what Mm. have you observed about the workforce,
1: particularly Mm.
0: in the last couple of years? Like, just wow.
1: Well, there's a continual, uh, you know, wailing about uh, the need for more. Um, but I feel that we need to think about whether we're treating our workforce properly that we have, mm. because if we're not retaining them in a profession like mine, where there's supposedly it's a, you know, a, a vocation, um, then there's got to be something that's not right in the way that things are being managed.
0: Systemically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I think um, part of it is that the um, private practices haven't really moved um into thinking about themselves as employers. Um, um, they still think of themselves as practice directors, which is a very nice term. I mean it's a nice term and it is, it's not a bad term or anything, but just not thinking, yeah, actually you're the boss. You're yep. you're actually yep. the boss. The club mentality
0: is not going to cut yeah. it.
1: Yeah. And if you've if you've managed to put your practice into a company structure, then you are the CEO or you know, or at least EO of that company. Yeah. So if you don't have on tap a HR person, an accountant, a legal advice, et cetera, you're an idiot a bit or you're yeah. putting yourself at
0: risk. Let's put it yeah. yeah, you're winging it.
1: Yeah, and and I guess when you're smaller, it's harder because where are, you, where are you going to find the money? And I guess I'd say the trouble is that unless you look at the books in a way that actually you evaluate whether the model is working for you, then how are you ever going to get anywhere? Uh, I was having a conversation with a practitioner who's got, who's still doing quite a lot of bulk billing um, in particular area of um, expertise. Yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) Done very well out of it. Plutch his heart. it's done very well out of it in a particular model. But we talked about, you know, if you don't want to um, change that, then you're going to have to have another income stream if you want to grow. Mm. And even, I, I guess what I would say, putting in a different sort of framework is to say a lot of psychologists don't have a plan B, C or D. You know, so they have wild ideas like I'm going to run an online course. Okay, are you any good at social media? Not really. Do you know how to make um, uh, you know, do you do training much? Not really. I've just got this idea. You know, so I, I guess it's. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm just saying
0: we the need commercial to, reality. Yes, and things through to be put into place to. Yeah, yeah. What,
1: what what's going to work now? In your, you know, I I put an online course together. Um, you know, on setting up a private practice. You know, it's done okay, but it's you wouldn't retire on it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Because I didn't do it probably the way I should have done it. I learned just typical uh, of somebody like myself. I went and uh, recorded it, um, did it, did the whole thing. I did it with a videographer. I did it quite professionally. And then I went, now I'll promote it. Well, that's not actually the way you're going to sell something. So the <laughs> idea of actually selling is really quite a I I think a lot of psychologists think they can, but they, they probably can't or or haven't learned how to. Yeah. So if you're going to have a plan B that involves selling something, you need to learn how to sell. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you want to work in a corporate environment, then you need to set your up, yourself up to have the corporate smarts, the connections. Yeah. Um, and, and so it goes on. You, you just um, you need to have a few different ideas. Otherwise, you're going to get to 55, have a practice that you, you, you don't really know what it's worth and can't work out what you would actually sell anyway.
0: You're uh, overworking in it. You're underpaid in it. Overwhelmed. Correct. Don't have okay. an exit plan. And there you are. And you're stuck
1: uh, because you didn't set anything up back in the day. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Circling back to the workforce, mm. you um, popped an interesting fact kind of in the prep for this conversation about the percentage of psychologists that may retire during the next five years. I think that needs to be heard by people listening yes so I did a double take on that number
1: yeah it's quite quite well what, what did you think
0: the number should would have been did you have any guess it was actually something I hadn't thought about which mm. was really interesting as well um so yeah I, I think you sort of said that it was about 15 percent
1: that's right so that's because the boomers and the last of the boomers are still here yep. um and so we've got so we basically had two, we've got two sort of bubbles. We've got the boomer bubble of people who are probably 55 and above and they're still, a number of them are still in the workforce and they, they will go. Um, and then you've got kind of a little bit of a gap and then there's another group that are all the people who have come through our master's programs and the high degree programs that have been around now for some time and are more like in their 40s. Um, the, the question really with... Um, all of these issues is really just how how are we going to deal with the fact that we've got this group who are going to retire, the 15%, and then we've got the group who are really our leaders for mm. the future. Yeah. Um, and what are they going to want for themselves? Because they're not going to want the same things as we wanted, as I wanted. They won't, they're not prepared to work 60-hour weeks. Um, they have a fairly strong sense of entitlement at one level not bad necessarily because sometimes it comes over it can come over as entitled but it, in many respects it's just self-care and they're just a bit they've watched people like me and gone you know different parents, boundaries yeah different and people said to me oh you know you you sold the practice to somebody outside of the of your practice I said i had four people in my practice I could have sold it to they all watched me and said we don't want to do that <laughs> now they've all subsequently gone and set up their own practices hilariously but that just said to me you were not you might have been role modelling some things as a practitioner, but as a business owner, you were absolutely atrocious model in terms of wanting to sell to the people you would hope would have taken over and you would have been prepared to stay and you know support. So that's really, I think, the interesting piece in terms of workforce is what's going to happen when the 15% go, this group who don't want to work you know, themselves to death quite the same way that some people might have in the past. And... What about the people coming through, the younger ones again? Where uh, will their leaders be? Who, will, who lead? will their leaders be? Who will lead? And, and you only have to go along to professional association and regulatory groups, the leadership groups of, of professions, and you see a lot of white hair, mm. or grey hair at least. Mm. And, you know, not a lot of young people coming through who are keen to do voluntary work uh,
0: for the good of the Participate at committee and, yeah, advisory levels.
1: And, and we, we don't seem to have made a shift in terms of that, of being able to say, well, okay, if that doesn't work anymore, what, what are we going to do instead? That's the piece that worries me, is that we haven't actually made any change in our thinking. And those of us who are in this group, like I, I sit on um, uh, a board of an, quite a large not-for-profit here in Victoria, and you know, I'm probably one of the youngest on the board. And I keep saying we have to do something about diversity and we have to do something about age. And it's quite difficult because the people who are on the board would like those people but don't know how to recruit them. Um, And essentially it's sort of a closed shop.
0: Yeah. Yep. Gosh. Has uh, pretty far-reaching implications on clinical leadership and really interesting implications for commercial leadership and private the private practice scene as well, particularly if we think about potentially the the big orgs kind of um, acquiring and you know where where there is employment opportunity for um clinicians who perhaps want their own thing or perhaps don't want to be included in some of those big, 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 big guys.
1: Well, if you look at those medium-sized practices where they, with the right business model, they could have a clinical lead, they could have a senior practitioner in each of the disciplines in that, um, in that uh, clinic or in the multiple clinics, and where if they brought in a business development manager rather than yep. a office manager or a practice or a oh
0: practice, oh manager.
1: The practice manager, that well, unicorn. You see, yep. I always say you're the practice manager. If you're if you own the practice, you are the practice manager. But where's your, you, what you really need is a business development manager or somebody who can bring in business development skills and, and other people into your space, as you said before, people who had different voices, different perspectives that you have to listen to if you want to actually achieve your vision. And so I think, and interestingly, um, younger psychologists are probably more risk averse than, than I was and than other people, you know, in, in that older vintage were. So it's kind of an interesting situation where I would say younger practitioners who are practice directors are somewhat risk-averse and, but are also um, perfectionistic and want to control everything and um, don't really want to, as you said, expose what might appear to be a weakness. Mm. Um, and so that means they're just not learning really or challenging themselves to think outside of the square. And they won't pay somebody to help them with that it's very leadership short-sighted that.
0: Yep. yeah 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 we're uh, loving seeing some of the organizational layering that some of our clients are, are achieving now and literally you know there's there's the clinical leadership team but then bringing in executive leadership team whether that's coo cfo cmo whatever yeah and uh yeah, it's it's it takes a ton of courage, but to now see the results of having these key executive leaders in place, amazing, just amazing.
1: And, and it's interesting because I think we're we've probably seeing that more in in the in allied health, apart from psychology space. I would say psychology. Oh, really? Is, oh, yeah. I say we're still a bit stuck uh, with you know everything being according to
0: clinical sort of ranking, and mm-hmm. um. Through that clinical lens, trying to run a business through a clinical lens,
1: I think so, and mm. um, and struggling to sort of see how you could bring in, as you say, a CFO or mm. chief operating officer or somebody like that. Mainly, again, because I don't think people have got the um, have set up the budget and the and the business model to support it, um, and they they don't have the language to explain it to their practitioners. Yep. Uh, to bring people along the journey with them, and it'll be interesting where the younger practitioners, as they sort of get into their straps, um, kind of a um, better at that. But I feel that the era of people who are now, you know, let's say, five years out of their master's program, so they're thirty-five or something, I think it's just going to be a different path. And it's mm-hmm. what it'll look like for that aggregate, that cohort. I think is still to be. The story to be written, yeah. and um, I think that's the interesting bit. But it's going to leave us with workforce shortages, I think, um, and our workforce distribution is pretty shit as well. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I think we, we have not been good at, um, you know, um, playing, let's be buddies with mental health social workers, mental health OTs and others. And apart from the services, the mental health services that are usually in child and adolescent area with NDIS funds, multi-disc is just not happening. Psychology is too obsessed with the idea that we're special and only we know, only us, Cathy, do we know about this thing called psychology. And so that's actually holding us back, I think, from developing. I can say this, it's my tribe um, and that's one of our, I think, one of our issues to work on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So workforce is changing um, and this piece around, you know, getting another 20, even 30 years of of life, you are yeah. got to use that well or as well as you possibly can. Um, and, yes, it comes with clinical responsibility and wisdom but also a ton of opportunity for people who are continuing to work through their 50s and 60s. I want to drop the question to you. What what's your concept of retirement?
1: Um well, I think I spent about probably three or four years talking to my husband and him talking to me about retirement. Every time we were on our own, it was retirement. We were talking about
0: mm.
1: <laughs> and we okay. nearly drove each other. We nearly drove each other mad because we really didn't yeah. know. I think we thought that if we kept talking about it, it'd kind of somehow magic its way into our um uh into reality and and essentially what happened was we both worked a lot um during covid we were in lockdown 24 7 it felt like here in melbourne and um you know and in that time in that the last 12 months particularly we we were both offered new jobs new careers Mm. really i've got a new career and so has he at the age we are which is 62. so um and i don't feel like i'm ready to let it go
0: do you think it's a bit of an outdated concept?
1: Well, this is the this is the interesting bit. So I've i got really fascinated by this by reading the book by Joanna Maxwell, um, which is called uh, Your Career into your forties, fifties, and sixties. And um, she's an interesting woman. She's from Sydney. Have you ever come across her? No, I haven't. I'm going to go looking though. Great book. Um, and she um, basically she's the um human rights commission. Um, anti age uh, sorry age discrimination yep. cr- c- uh, commissioner yep. uh, but before that she was a psychotherapist she's been a journalist and she's been a lawyer wow. and she is one powerhouse this lady and um, so I read a book and went wow I need her to talk to these psychologists <laughs> you know our, our, our tribe uh, our group and um, so I got in touch with her I said oh would you be interested oh yeah I'm coming to Melbourne actually next week do you want to have dinner oh sure thanks so we are looking to try and put together a workshop for health professionals, primarily probably for psychs, but really asking these questions of that fifteen percent who are in that upper. And look, I reckon there's some probably people in their early fifties who are thinking about this stuff as well. And you know, just sort of putting up your feet or something, and or driving around around Australia in ever decreasing circles doesn't really row you know row their boat. So mm-hmm. that's really for me is you know what is your purpose what what are you wanting to have not so much as your legacy because I think I feel like I've sort of done a bit of that
0: that's enough with that yeah that's not something that just appears when you're 60 I no. think you're leaving tracks behind you the you whole are. way through
1: yeah and people say "Oh, you would be doing volunteer work or I something I not volunteer work or whole entire life. life mm. that's not I really do it for me but I'd be interested in going into an organization and helping in some specific way and one of the things I was thinking, you know, is what we don't have is a brains trust or a group of people. Like, in, the, for example, in the Australian Psychological Society, we have a group of fellows who have been, you know, I'm one of them, who have been given that honour. But how do we turn something like that, not those people necessarily, but but a group into a potential board of directors that you could call on? Yeah. Like brains we,
0: trust, that's great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how do we, and they each have different interest areas And they're prepared to volunteer a certain amount of time to help out younger practitioners and younger practices for the good of the community and for the good of those those businesses. Mm -hmm. And, I don't know, there's things like that kind of roll around my head because I think to myself I've got so much more to say and offer and talk to people about um, and I just can't see that finishing up any time soon. I've got ageing parents like a lot of people. My parents are in their late 80s. You know, they're going to, my mother will kick on, you know, They had their own parents lived into nineties, so you know there's still there's those things still going on that I'm gonna I can see I'll be caring in part for them with my sisters, but you know so there's going to be other things in my life. But the purpose bit is really the interesting thing. I've got children as well, Um, but you know just what what do you see yourself as being fulfilled by?
0: Yeah,
1: that is the, the. And it doesn't
0: have to be one static thing. Permission granted for that purpose to shift around and to have that choice and control around where you focus and what you want to explore. And um, as much as anything, defining what you don't want to do actually helps narrow narrow down where you want your focus to go with where you want to add value or be helpful or whatever.
1: I think the interesting bit is when I've, you know, when we've told people we've got these new jobs is people go, oh, you're so lucky. I went, mean, no,
0: <laughs> it's not really about luck. Nor was I uh, in the right place at the right time. Hello. No, that,
1: no, no. That's same as luck. Um, you know, I've worked hard at this. I spent, I did four years of voluntary work for Deakin, not knowing where that was going, but because I liked it and I liked the people there and I liked talking to students and all the rest of it and doing guest lectures and chairing their advisory um, group for their clinical programs, blah blah. And then suddenly somebody just went, "Hey, this job over here. Do you want to come and do it?" Um, I didn't expect it particularly, but you know it's lovely to be asked and and it's a three-year contract so we'll see where it goes but but that's not a purpose it's more like for me it's more like an opportunity to go to a different context and try out my ideas with obviously new um newly minted psychologists relatively speaking so that's going to be interesting um and just see whether what I think works and what I've come across in my career and what I've developed with others is actually something durable over the generations. Yeah. You know, we all got to let go sometimes and say, maybe what I did just doesn't work anymore. I'm okay with that as well.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, it's um it's a it's a topic that I um speak with trusted people around because the retirement piece it can land in a very chilly <laughs> very chilly tones and um there's a lot of tradition around it and preconceived ideas um but for me, it's a completely outdated piece. It's just a really unhelpful word. And I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago, and we were trying to come up with words that were better and more flexible and more contemporary around it. We haven't we haven't shortlisted the vocabulary at all yet. Um, there's all sorts of cliches, but it's it's it, it just is so finite and so black and white and so rigid and so contrived. Well, it's just
1: ageist, is what it is. <sighs> Which is why you know jo- Joanna Maxwell, is such a an interesting person to be, you know, uh, writing stuff about this, is because she's she's uh, got a lot of research behind her, but also she's seen that ageist experience, and she is of this era. You know, she's in her sixties herself, and I can't see her slowing down anytime soon. And again, not everybody has to have that kind of drive, but you know, I think it is about being open to having conversations about why people are choosing what they're choosing because secrecy by and large just tends to reinforce ageism and I guess um, a one-size-fits-all type of idea and and as you say the, um, the, the conservative traditional way that things work and I guess I say if a pandemic taught us anything it taught us that everything that you thought was you know immutable and could never change, forget it. If somebody said to me, Medicare could turn around item numbers in two weeks and have telehealth for all psychologists, I would have said you're dreaming. Yeah, but we weren't, and it happened. Um, yeah. and in, in the time of the pandemic, I would say one of the other things that's happened that's been really exciting is to see really the fi- some of the final nails being. Um, hammered into the coffin of st- the stigma against men- mental health.
0: Oh yes. Now
1: we have people who I would never have thought would have really seen the importance of mental health, speaking advocating. up and yeah. advocating. Yeah. And so there are some good things on the horizon, but it's a it's a pretty volatile environment we're in at the moment, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. So we'll probably have to just keep talking about it, Kathy.
0: We will. We can do that again. We can do that again. Um, time is not necessarily on our side right now. What are some of the the key thoughts you'd like listeners, allied health business owners, to kind of consider?
1: The first thing I would say is um, don't just listen to the sound of your own voice. And most of what we experience as business owners, somebody else has experienced and found some ways of dealing with it. And it's so important to find um, support and not only peer support, but also people who are more knowledgeable than you who can come at it from a very objective outsider's perspective, perhaps from uh, a different point of view Mm -hmm. that can help you because it'll be money well spent, time well spent getting that advice from the outside. And be clear about what you don't know and stop hiding it from yourself and other people. Mm. Uh, If you don't really get accountancy stuff, then go and do a course on it. Um, you know pay your accountant to give you a crash course and it take notes ask questions whatever whatever works for you but don't sit around in the dark and think worrying oh,
0: uh, about yeah, what you don't know
1: I ca- yeah I can't ask that because it'll make me look like a fool hmm. um I, I, you know be the be the one who is courageous enough to walk through the door and say you know we've been talking about these accountancy terms all these years I don't actually know what you're talking about <laughs> Yep. You know, not really. I not in the way I'd like to know. So I think it's really about reaching out, opening up, being prepared to be vulnerable to people who can help you. Trust that you will find those people,
0: mm-hmm. and keep
1: looking until you get the right ones. Yeah, and know that in my view, LA, the allied health professions is a great place to be. Um, it, There's a lot going on in that space. There's a lot about it that. I think, is dynamic in a way. I mean, we were talking before about, you know, are we going to be like GPs and go through what they've been through? Maybe. But I think we're also probably in some ways more independent as thinkers go. Um, and I think we have the capacity to develop our own approach to the future of healthcare in the allied health space if we can only just harness that and get past some of the, you know, artificial territories, mm-hmm. the artificial territories that we yeah. want to protect all the time and start talking to each other. Thank you. Let's chat again, Kay. Love it. Love to, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For the show notes and other resources, our webinar replays, they're all available over on nacre.com.au. And if you're loving what you're listening to, please subscribe. We don't want you to miss out on a single thing. And if you want others to get the same benefit that you've had from listening into these episodes, please share this episode and any of the others forward to any of your other allied health business colleagues. And we are totally here for you. Don't forget for a moment that you can jump on in and book that power call and uh, we can see how we can help you get the best of business done. Looking forward to seeing you there.